Hiya folks, you're very welcome and thank you for joining the Jason Joyce Health Podcast. Do you feel like you're running through life constantly switched on and trying your best to be that bit healthier, that bit happier? This constant pressure can lead to overwhelming feelings of stress, anxiety and burnout. You may just feel lost or disconnected. My aim is to help you slow down and take stock of what is truly important to you in your life. What nurtures your soul? Through stories and honest conversations with people from different walks of life. My hope is that this podcast will help educate, entertain, challenge and inspire you in all areas of health and happiness. I'm Jason Joyce. It's time to stop running and start living. I hope this podcast finds you in good form and you're well. Please continue to share this on social media with friends or family who you think will benefit. I really value your support. A big thank you to my main man, Dermot Milton, at Around the Square on all social media platforms. He helps me with all my release artwork. Check out his stuff, it's class. Today's guest is one of the youngest men to get his hands on the Sam McGuire, winning a senior All-Ireland title with Dublin at the age of 18. Although his life looked idyllic on the outside, he was suffering massively on the inside and he didn't want to be part of this world. One year later, he went from winning a Leinster Under-21 Championship with Dublin and getting man of the match in that performance to waking up in St. Patrick's Mental Hospital where he had to stay for 11 weeks. He could no longer hide his suffering and decided to speak out and when he did, the weight of the world was lifted from his shoulders. This is a wonderful message of hope. I'm very honoured to introduce today's guest, Shane Carty. All right, Shane, I'm very grateful to have you on today. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on. I just want to ask you, who are you? Who am I? I would guess people would see me as just a footballer, but I'm a lot more than that. I'm a person who has a kind of fire ignited in himself, particularly over the last kind of couple of years, to speak about mental health. Of course, football has given me that kind of pedestal that I'm so fortunate to have. I'm just trying to normalise the conversation around mental health. Go about my life as any normal kind of young adult going through college, getting a degree and just learn about life and continuing to do that. And continuing to work on not only my sporting life, but also my mental health. You're in college at the moment? So I just finished up, yeah. I'm actually, what I'm doing at the minute is a book coming out uh, at the start of the next year. So I've been very, very busy with that the last year uh, with O'Brien's publishers. It's basically a story around everything that I went through. It's been very taxing, very rewarding at the same time. Difficult in stages, of course. You know, I'm writing stuff that not only myself and, and the general public will be reading for the first time, but my mum and dad. There's not a lot that they... Uh, wouldn't have seen, but there is a couple of um, stories I have within there that, you know, would have been to myself. So tipping away with that. And obviously just prior to pandemic, I was very busy right around the country with talks, be it with clubs, schools, corporates. That's globally picking back up, albeit Zoom calls. I actually had my first physical talk there yesterday in the Donnelly's Community School, which is great, which is really good. You have that kind of physical interaction and to speak to the kids, convey that message of kind of hope. And it's certainly seen that after the questions and interaction from them was absolutely incredible what is your message message is that there is life beyond in my case it was depression but there is life beyond any mental health difficulty you may be experiencing from my side i very much would have been to the darkest and deepest times of suicidal ideations that was the fact of the matter a hugely hugely difficult space to be in but being in that space where you think there is no hope there's just darkness on the easiest way is to end it all and certainly not the case. That is the message that I'm trying to get across. You can go to the deepest and darkest times, but yeah, you can get out of it. Everything that I've done thereafter has been so fulfilling 
I wouldn't have come about if I didn't take that first step in talking. And that's probably the main message that I try to get across to people is they very often ask me, what do you do if you're in a space of difficulty? And I say talk. And it's probably the most difficult step to take, that first step in breaking that barrier of speaking. It doesn't have to be your whole story. You don't have to make sense of it all. But it's just conveying that message to be a friend, a family member, or someone down the street if you're more comfortable with that. That's the kind of message I'm trying to convey to both people young and old because it affects people of all ages. So your main message is, although you might be in the darkest of times, there is hope. It's like the darkness and the light slogan. There, like the, There's always light after the darkness. Would that be it? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And when you say talk, what do you mean? That's the difficulty within it because for me, I say when I spoke up, I didn't make a whole lot of sense because I couldn't make sense of it in my own head. It was, I don't know why the cloudiness was fulfilling my mind and I couldn't make sense of it, but I knew I wasn't quite right. And that was the, the first broach of conversation that I had with my parents and stemming from there, Daisy Farrell, that I said, look, I haven't been feeling the same way over the last kind of couple of years. A year and a half through my journey, I had the first thoughts of going by suicide. And those are the kind of stark thoughts that I would have had. And I was, you know, explaining that as best I could in a clouded head. But I was hoping that I would, the age all saying, the problem share is a problem half. That's what I was hoping to do, be it my family or Desi Farrell, as it were. And then from there, it was absolutely incredible journey that I went on. I could then make more sense of it because like, I got into speaking with doctors, psychologists, nurses, and then they made more sense of it. You know, and as the kind of cloudiness ascended, that's when I could speak a bit more openly and make more sense of it myself. So it was near awareness that there was a problem and then you could, all right, now I can actually start to address this. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's facing up to the fact that was the thing I put off for so long, for so many years, that there was a problem, there was an issue. I didn't want to feel that way. And it gradually got worse and worse because I was seen as this popular figure amongst people with a life that was perceived to be going very well. And it was. I had a good dumb career on its embryonic stages with the, with the minors and then going on to the seniors you know, I was popular amongst friends and everything was going well in school and everything else. So from the outside looking in, there was nothing wrong in my life. That was a difficulty that I had speaking up straight away. Looking back now, the two-year journey that I went on, God, if I hadn't known what was there after, I would have spoken up on day one. Just before we go any further, can you tell people that story of what happened, where you were at that time that people might not know, like you were playing for Dublin, you were winning All-Irelands, but on the inside, yeah. it wasn't like that for you. A quick overview of it would have been, it would have started for me in the middle of fifth year. What I didn't know then, what I now know was depression. I would have started off very sporadically at that time in the middle of fifth year. I was going into my second year at Dublin Minor Football and we were trying to right the wrong from the previous year. We'd lost out to a last minute temporary goal. So, you know, my focus was solely on football that coming year, uh, getting to the All-Ireland final and righting that wrong. There was a very different story going on inside. At the start, I was so naive and thinking there's hormonal changes, something going on in my body. A crutch my medication around that time was football those happy endorphins that I'm sure all the listeners can relate to whether it be from Gaelic or soccer or run or swim those happy endorphins that you release post-exercise that was my crutch my medication I guess it would have got into six months from a journey we'd write that wrong we'd won the All-Ireland and everyone thinking I'm living this idyllic life just sent it into six year and a month after the All-Ireland minor final just turned 18 years of age and I get a call from Mick Deegan to, to say Jim Gavin wants me up to Dublin Senior Footballers come that January 2013. So you can imagine then, as I'm, I'm telling my friends and everyone around the area, getting heated, it's about what can go wrong in this man's life. And 
I was crumbling inside. I was getting worse and worse as the days and weeks and months went on. But I felt like I had to put up that poker face, that mask to say everything was okay because my life was going on an upper curve. But yet my mental health was going the opposite way. So it would have been January 2013 and my leaving cert then had come and gone. I could solely kind of focus on the football. And again, imagine 18 years of age, I'm going out in front of 82,500 people with my idols, you know, lads who I would have been on the hill only a couple of years ago cheering on and I'm just, you know, right beside them and addressing them out on the pitch. We got to that Ireland final. Come that September, on top of the Hogan Sand steps after defeating me by a point in that game at 18 years of age, lifting the trophy. And little did people know what was really going on. And just a week after the All-Ireland final, that was then when I had the first thought of dying by suicide. And I'd never forget, I was sitting there thinking, for a man who's 18 years of age, overachieving everything I should have achieved to date in my career, just won a Sam Maguire, and yet I want no part in this world. I was thinking, how can I say this to my family? How can I say this to my mates? I think I was lying. So as I did, I kind of trundled on, and that kind of helped my face up, and, and that crutch set medication continued to be football. I was training five, six, seven times a week, even times when I wasn't training. I just went out for a run just to blow off some steam. And it brought me to a very pivotal time in, in January 2014. This is now obviously two years through my journey. It was actually a match. It was a friendly match down in Cork. I was representing the under 21 footballers. My mom and dad, right to this day, they travel right around the country with me and they were down to this game. Halfway through the game, unbeknownst to me, my mom and dad, my mom received the phone call off, off my uncle to say her dad had passed away, my granddad passed away. I was unaware of it at the time, hadn't a clue, and, and I followed off home. My mum and dad were, were sat in the sitting room after coming back from the match at one o'clock in the morning. I'm thinking, there's something not quite right here. Why, why are they standing there in the sitting room at one o'clock in the morning? And it was where they met me with the news that my grandmother passed away. Such was the lack of emotion, the numbness that I was experiencing. I simply said, I'm sorry, and I left the room. And that was the first warning sign, I guess, for them that such a piece of devastating news. I would have been so close to them as well. I would have visited him every couple of weeks where he would have told me I should have scored another 10 goals in whatever game I was playing in. So with the reaction such like that, it was very much the first warning sign for them. In around that time, I was thinking of speaking up. The conversation we just had there, I didn't know what I wanted to say, but I knew I had to speak up because the fact of the matter was it was life or death for me at that stage. But because of the past, my granddad, I said, look, I'll shut up shops I did for the previous two years and keep trundling on. A couple of weeks have gone by, the funeral are coming gone and I'm now building up the courage yet again. Just six weeks after the past to my granddad, my nanny had passed away too, both on my mom's side. So you can imagine then, Jay, I'm, I'm there thinking, I need to speak up, but no matter what's going on in my life, it can't even compare it to what my mom and family alike are going through. So as I did for the previous two years, shut up shop and said everything was okay. It brought me to a very pivotal time around this stage of kind of my journey. It was doing a 21 football championship, the Leicester final against me that evening. And it was a Wednesday morning where my mom met me in the sitting room in front of tears. And at this stage, I was just crying on call. Couldn't make sense, but didn't know why I was crying. I just couldn't control my emotions. The filter was just open and I was just crying. And she sat with me for a couple of hours and she knew she needed to get me out and distract me before the game that evening. So she contacted my middle system, right, to get me out that day. Bright idea. And I'm sure you've been there. How was cliff walk? Why she chose a cliff walk to... The morning of a game is beyond me. She still doesn't know to this day. But nevertheless, it was known that she was like she was right by my side. She was that listening ear that I so deeply needed. I didn't say a whole lot on the, on the trip. I think she just you know took up most of the reins and just distracted me, just chatting anything. And uh, when I came back into the car, the cliff walk had finished. As if when I closed the door, all the thoughts and feelings for those previous two years came bundling straight back in. And it was the first time that I thought maybe football can't even be my outlet here. I'm such a deep, dark space here. I need to speak up. 
I had Desi Farrell, who was the manager at the time, pushed him button away to say, I can't go through with this match. I can't go out to this packed Port Leash crowd and represent Dublin. For whatever reason, I didn't go through with that phone call. I don't know why to this day I didn't. But I went off home, got my gear back ready, met the lads in the team hotel and half some water, and that was it. Off I was on the bus. And I often speak about this to people. I was at the top of the bus. I had my headphones on. I had a certain playlist, a certain set of songs that brought me to a happier place, whether it be with family, friends, holiday or something like that. And I played as loud as I could solely to drown out the thoughts that I was feeling for far too long. Halfway through this bus journey, I'd text my middle system, right? to say, look, I'm going through a huge difficult time here. I can't go out to this Packport Leash crowd. She said, the family's right behind me. They want to see me out on that pitch. And sure enough, we arrived to the ground and I got ready for the match that I always did. And to be honest with you, I, I've always said it's the most satisfying 60 minutes of football I've, I've ever played in my life. It was like a kid in a playground again, literally running away from the thoughts that were going deep within. I was looking at the ref, I'll never forget it. I think we're four or five points up at this stage, you know, a couple of minutes to go. I was thinking, don't blow it up. With anyone else, you're thinking, you know, four or five points up at the game, blow the whistle, finish the game. Sure enough, he did. Um, we, we'd won the game and added to that, I was actually awarded man in the match in the game. And little do people know as I'm walking up the top of those steps, collecting my man in the match award, what was going on for me only 12 hours previous. They just seen this line right figure yet again going up and top of the steps and collecting my award. So my mum and dad knew what was going on for me around the stage. So I went off into the dressing and put my gear on and went off home, my mum and dad. I was off to Stockholm the following day. I've got three sisters, one of which Michelle, oldest sister. I confide in her a bit more and then I deal with my other two sisters. So my mum and dad were thinking, okay, get away for a couple of days. Let them speak to Michelle. Everything would be absolutely okay. And little did they know, I didn't know what it was I wanted to say to her. I went over to her and I met her with the news that I did with my mum and dad. I've been feeling this way for the previous two years. In recent times, I've had thoughts of going by suicide. Sister there, so many thousand miles away, so deeply wanting to help me. And that's all I could furnish her with. All she wanted to do was help me, and that's all I could furnish her with. So that trip is essentially null and void. I come back, and we're now preparing for the All-Ireland semi-final against Cabin in a couple of weeks' time. And I text Desi Farrell, and the reason why I did was he had actually previous depression and previous psychiatric nurse. So I was hoping he was going to give me all the answers that I didn't have. I'd met him out in Santry, in Costa Coffee there. People are sat around having their morning coffee, their morning breakfast. I was in my floor of tears. I was, I was really embarrassed today. I was, I was there. A six foot three, 19 year old man in a flood of tears in a coffee shop. I was so embarrassed, but I couldn't control my emotions. After the five minutes of day, I get to speak to Desi, I told him what was going on for me. It was difficult knowing that he had answered back and said, Look, we'll get you whatever help you need. We're going to get this right and we're going to get you back on track. And that's what I needed. That was the answer that kind of set me back on track and gave me a bit of hope. He said, In a couple of days' time, we'll get you off to see a psychologist. I never got to see the psychologist because the following day, I went off. We had a training camp preparing for this game against Cabin. Mom and Dad didn't want me driving on my own. So my dad actually drove me up to TCU for a training camp that we had. Training come and gone, and we're due to have a meeting now in Castlemock Hotel. And between the journey from DCU to Castlemock Hotel, I took a massive spike in heart rate, a massive spike in adrenaline, and was transported next as a panic attack. I blacked out, and my next avoiding memory was being woken up in St. Pat's. Those kind of associations that I had with when nurses told me you're in a mental hospital, I was thinking, Dark jury room, people in straight jackets, head button walls. That's where I thought it was. I think that's what a lot of people think what a mental hospital is. And it's anything but it couldn't be further from the truth. And I spent 11 weeks there. It was probably the toughest 11 weeks I've ever faced up to in my life. But when I got around that acceptance piece of this is what I'm facing up to, it became that bit easier. I wouldn't have said everything was uh, A-OK, but 
I could eventually start stemming from there. A lot has happened for me. So in a very roundabout way, that's my story in a nutshell there. 2014, wasn't it? Yeah, 2014 that I went in. April 16, 2014 that I went into, into hospital. And then over the last six years, you've been just working on it. Like, can you give me a brief overview of what happened between 2014 and now? Like, what's the last six years? Have you worked on it or has it been a journey? So that was the thing. I was very much prepared. It was a couple of weeks, as I said, that acceptance piece of this isn't just going to be a quick fix. I thought I was going to be in the hospital for a couple of days and grand, get out of my life and go back to football. That was my tunnel vision that I had. And only when I removed that filter and I was able to really open up to life and accept that this is going to be something I'm going to have to deal with on a daily basis. That's what depression is. It's an up and down thing and something that people have to deal with on an everyday scale. And that was the thing. I was built up to have tools and resources that would allow me to cope outside. And these tools and resources that I still use today, the thing of mindfulness, meditation, guided imagery, all these stuff that I didn't even know. I had a clue what any of this was. didn't even know what mental health was. So after the 11 weeks, I went out from the hospital and GPA, you were usually sportive and where I've got to today and then especially in around that time they'd set me up with an appointment um, for a psychologist that I'd then seen twice a week for a number of months eventually spaced out over the course of two or three years to once a week once every couple of weeks that type of thing and it was a consistent kind of working away as we do with our physical fitness you train away you need to keep on top of that that's the way I'd seen it. I was going to train my mind I was going to a football training that evening I had mental health training that afternoon with my psychologist. And that's the kind of view that upon, basically. It was very difficult in terms of not only the psychologist kind of going to him and up. I mean, you'd have good and bad days. you go to him in, in a failed humor and you wouldn't really want to talk. But eventually, when you open that filter, he was hugely supportive to me. In addition to that, I was put on medication. I wouldn't be a huge advocate of medication. I, I never have. And I know works in, in a certain regard but I, I was kind of reluctant to take it at the start but I then realised it was just another crutch for me to get back on the straight and narrow four years after coming out of hospital I became medication free back in 2018 May of 2018 I'd finished up with the last kind of round my psychologist and I'm now kind of living independently that door is always open for my psychologist as I said I still have my good and bad days so it's not as if I've closed that chapter but I've moved on to a point now that I can cope in everyday life independent of a psychologist and that's a huge usually part moment for me my family i hope to continue on that trend as i go along the years looking at you now like that's why i asked who are you it sounded like football's part of your life and you're a lot more rounded you're not just shane carty the dublin footballer what does now look like for you are you happy every day or do you have to do certain things what way does your life look now if I'm being completely open and honest, I still have my good and bad days. And even in recent times, I've gone through the whole rigmarole of going through college, getting a degree, eventually releasing this book, finishing up with the talks and thereafter. And my kind of next life step, I don't really know where I'll be. I don't know from a career aspect. I don't know what I want to do. And that's been a stressor for me. I've opened up to my friends and family in recent times. I've had difficulty around that, not really known. And, and everyone has that crossroads in their life and will continue to have as they go through different steps. And I'll never shy away from the fact my good and bad days. That's part of my bad days now where I get a bit stressed and overwhelmed thinking, where am I going next? Even from a sporting point of view, I've been in and out of the Dublin squad for the last number of years and that's a hugely kind of taxing thing in my mind thinking, you know, will I get, will I get back in? Will I get back in? I pick up an injury, I get dropped again. These are hugely difficult kind of periods in life that I wouldn't have been able to deal with all them years ago. And now I'm so grateful that I have all these tools and resources bank built up of 
the confidence that I'm able to get through these difficult periods and not having to be within my mind and, and let it build up and fester and manifest into something that it did many years ago. So as you said, yeah, years ago, I would have seen, who are you? I'm Shane Carter, Dublin footballer. That's all I was. And that's all I seen myself was. Nothing else has gone on in my life. And yet it's part of my life now. It's not the biggest thing by any means. I love football. I love sport. I love exercise. But there's so much more to life than that. And I'm glad I've been opened up to that because life is so much better from that aspect. I was the very same when I was 27. I remember I was Jason Joyce, the physio and the footballer. I broke my hip and I had to get surgery. All of that was gone. I was all of a sudden unable to walk, unable to train, unable to work as a physio. And that's when I hit my dark days. And I always look at my mid-20s and all that happened. I always call them the dark years because... I was like you, I didn't know what was going on. I was like, I can't even chase my goals because I was very ambitious and goal-driven. And all of a sudden, I was just in this world of being on my own, not being able to move. And for the first time, I couldn't run away. Mm -hmm. That's when my journey started. And I started getting into mindfulness and started doing personal development courses and reading up. And like that was, what, seven years ago? And it was the best thing that ever happened to me when I look back now because mm-hmm. I'm not a footballer now. I'm not a physio. They are parts of who I am. But I'm also a husband. Yeah. I'm a son. And that's really important. And I think in the GAA, that can be a problem. We're very, we can identify on the gap player. Do you see yeah. that a lot? From your point of view, my point of view, I don't think it's a negligence to anything else. It's all that we knew. Where back then, it was all that we knew. It wasn't an arrogance to, I'm not interested, that's nothing to do with me, I don't want to know about mindfulness and meditation, my wife, my kids, that type of thing. It's not negligence to that, it's just a bubble that you surround yourself in. It's 24-7, it's high octane, it's amateur, but it's professionalism at its best, if you like. And I think a lot of kind of guy players are perfectionists in a way, and you know when they get into something, they really want to hone in on something and neglect everything else going on in their life. And I find that with a lot of people. I find that with not only from inter-county footballers, but club footballers as well. I find that they put their life on hold. They, they don't go to holidays. They don't go to weddings. They don't drink at certain events. They put absolutely everything on hold. And that's fine to a regard. I, I completely understand that I've been in that space. I am in that space. Um, but you have to remember that there is more to life than football. And football is here for a very short period, albeit an absolutely fantastic career. You meet friends for life. Things that stem from that will give you career opportunities, possibly, if you're lucky. There's an awful lot more to life and to neglect those for 10, 15, 20 years that you're playing football and then think, I'm landing on my feet. You often hear when people retire from what, be it soccer, professional soccer, or Gaelic football as it is, they don't know. They, ha- they haven't built up these other resources in their lives. These other boxes of, be it their family, their friends, Another hobby, another kind of social event that they go to. They just know football and then when they're dropped on their feet, be it an injury or they retire, they're thinking, where am I? And it's that beginning of that dark space, that dark cycle. And I've had plenty of conversations with people around that. And it's a thing of, Jay, I I would often say to people that don't let yourself get to that space to realize that you have to do something. If you're getting on great in your life, absolutely fantastic. But always build upon it. Always look to upscale, upscale, whether it be in your private life, your social life, your family life, whatever it may be. Just keep on building those tools and resources because God forbid one day that adversity comes by your doorstep and you're not equipped to deal with it. That's what I say. Whatever you do in your life, you won't be able to do it to the best of your ability if you're not all mentally there. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And that kind of reminds me of just pillars or your big rocks in your life. Like yeah. normally four or five pillars are essential to be well-rounded. And football is just, yeah. it's a big one, but it's only one pillar. And I've seen that a lot. And also, if, if you're going through a very stressful time, football, because it's very professional, let's be honest, senior club level in Dublin is so professional at the moment. We have strength and conditioning, we have nutritionists, we have all this. That's a, There's massive pressure with football as well. And I think people, they inadvertently, and I've realised that even with the, with the kind of club scene, say back in 2019, I wasn't even involved with the, with the Dublin setup. For the first year since God, I think it was 20, 2010. So all the way up from twenty eleven up to about twenty eighteen, I was involved in some shape or form, be it with the minors and seniors and twenty ones. From January to September, nothing else has gone on in my life, and that was it. Only when I went back to the club that I'd realised that they're slowly morphing into this kind of thing of January to September, October, whatever it may be. That there's nothing else going on in their life and. You need to find that balance. Of course, go hell for leather and train your hardest and, and be the best that you can be, both individually and collectively. But you need to have those other pillars, as you say, going on in your life. You're only a trainer for a couple hours every week, four, five, six hours, whatever it may be. What else are you doing in, in the other aspects of your life to keep you on an even keel and, and keep you mentally all there? That's the kind of question I always to people. Going to 33 now, so I'm coming towards the end of my career. I still find it difficult. Like if I have a match on Saturday, Literally, the following two weeks prior are nearly planned. Like, nearly when I'm training, when I'm eating, if I'm, what way I'm doing my mindfulness. It's like you spoke about that game in Park Leash. You just went out like a kid and you just played. And when I do that, I play really well. This year, because of what happened to my dad, I really wanted to win. We got relegated from senior to intermediate. I really wanted to win the intermediate championship this year. I remember having a slight panic attack before. The, we had a game against St. Pat's at Parmistown because I put so much pressure on myself. I was like, and all of a sudden the fun has gone out of football. That's why I played football because I'm a big kid. And I could, yeah. it wasn't till about a month later that I realised what really happened. It's easy to say, oh, we need to develop them pillars. But I'm, I'm educated in it. I understand it. But it's still very, very hard. And I can completely relate to that point of, of where you said it hasn't that pressure that you put on yourself. And I, and I remember... When I come back into the club scene in 2019, I was like that, right, I need to make an impression here. I have to, you know, do something for this club to be recognised again, to be recognised as an intercounty football again. I wanted it so desperately. And I remember at the start, I simply wasn't playing my best football because I was so tight. I was thinking too much. I was literally my whole life surrounded football. And I wasn't that kid in the playground again. It was this uptight 24-year-old thinking, Football is the only thing going on in his life and I have to get this right. This is my one opportunity. Instead of just going out and seeing it upon, I'm physically fit, this is great. I'm playing with my mates. I'm doing what I love to do and just see where it takes us. From that point of view, only when I've actually spoken to, I don't know, Clean O'Connor, yeah. hugely influential in my life, uh, particularly over the last kind of couple of years. And she's had a very kind of successful senior career with the with Dublin ladies footballers stemming from there with Cool and, and now the Dublin senior hurlers. And she's been hugely influential in, in my kind of mindset, I would say, going into games, particularly after the lockdown. She said, I just want to see that big kid again. I just want to see a big smile on your face, not a care in the world. Yes, we'll train hard and we have to, and we will. We'll get you physically ready. But when you're out on that pitch, I want you to be a kid. I want you to be infectious amongst others. I want you to run around, get on that ball, get scores, get tackles. Like 
that kind of thing and looking at upon that and I think it's very hard to claim what I found difficult was being that kid being that kind of I'm not a care in the world but also then I'm thinking if I'm not caring all that much am I doing the best that I can do if you know what I'm saying if I'm not taking it seriously am I playing as good as I can if I did take it seriously you know and it's trying to find that even keel in terms of okay I'm, I'm relaxed here but I'm not fully switched on but if I go too fully switched on I'm I'm not switched it's the double edged sword you don't really know where you find yourself so I'm a consistent battle with that I'm sure you talk to any club footballers inter-county footballers you're trying to find that sweet spot nearly through your whole career what do I eat what do I say how do I train the week of the game all, all this kind of thing all these kind of things are hugely stressing aspects of it but it's that kind of quest to find that sweet spot and when you do it's so fulfilling yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny because I've got the total same advice. Remember a manager pulled me aside and he goes, I just want you to relax and just go out and laugh and enjoy the game. And I'm like, this is a proper match. You shouldn't be telling me to do that. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. when I reflect back, I know exactly. And this year, I really, after I, I reflected back on that Pats game, I was like, oh, all right, Jay, you need to go out and relax. And do you know what? It did have a big impact. So that morning I got up and I just chilled out. I didn't say I have a match, I can't move one step because that's consuming some sort of energy. I just got yeah, out yeah. a normal routine. I did my bit of stretching, my bit of mindfulness and my cold share and got out for a walk and ate well and that was it. I was like, and I did them positive affirmations. I am fit, I love football and I pictured my seven-year-old self as a kid playing football. And I said, that's my goal today. So I set an intention of actually going out and playing like a seven-year-old. That helps. But again, as you said, sometimes you nail that and you go out and you perform. And then other days, you're nearly trying too hard to nail it. You put more pressure on yourself and you underperform. And then you yeah. beat yourself up for a while. And yeah, it's a tough one. In the GAA, do you... See, there's much mental health problems. You think it's all hidden. I read an article about you on the Times and you were talking about masks. What do you think about mm-hmm. that? Not only from the Gaelic world, but as a country, as a society in general, there's a huge kind of reluctance still to speak up. We've come such a long way in terms of stemming back to when I was going through my difficulties. You know, I had no one to look up to or relate to from a mental health standpoint, particularly in, in the Gaelic football world. Over this pandemic, I've been getting messages about, you know, lads from young and old kind of ask me questions what do I do how do I look after myself uh, any tips or advice you know it's that first step that I firstly say to them look you've taken that first step of actually wanting to do something about it and I know there's so many other lads out there that are finding difficulty when they're taking that first step and speaking up whether you like it or not it's still that kind of masculine game of when you're in a dressing room what are you going to say to 30 lads oh lads I'm feeling a bit sad today and it's that kind of manifestation in your head that negative kind of spiral of thoughts that you have, that oh, the lads are going to laugh at me if Big J or Big Shane says they're, they're not feeling great today. How are they going to react? Whereas I'm like, if you or I came in with, on crutches with a broken leg, the lads be quick to ask you, what's wrong with you? Anything to do, blah, blah, have a bit of crack with that. But because it's your head, your mental health, they don't want to broach that kind of conversation. And I've seen it slowly improve. I have, in fairness now, particularly in my club, I've had a number of lads be on the seniors and minors or even on, on the older adult teams and um, be it the juniors and up to me and ask for advice and open up in that conversation. I've met them for coffee down in the village and, and just had a real kind of conversation. I think we're very quick as a society stem, stemming away from Gaelic football. I think we're very quick as a society to go, how are you? Yeah, I'm grand. 
Whereas I'm like, how are you actually feeling? How are you? When people answer, it's like, oh, I'm not doing great. I've a lot of stress of, you know, the wife, the kids, blah, blah, blah. And then people are like, oh, I didn't want that answer, you know? And we're still a long way from actually being comfortable having those conversations because a lot of people aren't equipped to have those conversations. They don't really know what to say. They try to be the doctor, psychologist in the room and instead of being that kind of listening ear and relating back to what they're saying, just let, let people speak, relate to them in, in any shape or form that you can if there is some relation and crossover in what they're saying. And very oftentimes, I find when I am speaking to Gaelic footballers or even people away from that world, when they open that conversation, there's so much crossover. Like we've just had a conversation here about like the kind of mental battle that we have before games or trainings and there's so much crossover. And you wouldn't believe that when you open up that conversation, there's so many people going through the same thing that they can relate to you. Just like certain rituals, what would you do now that you're like, Jay, I do this every day or what really helps you? So at the minute, number one still on my list, I'll never shy away from the fact that it was my crutch on medication for two years is physical exercise. Now, I wouldn't be out pounding the roads every time going on five, 10 Ks or whatever. If it's just a walk, if it's a swim or something like that, I can't you know, rely upon if I train or a match the next day. Then I would rely upon, say, my steps two and three, which would be that kind of music podcasts from then meeting up with friends for a coffee, something like something less physically demanding on my body if I have, say, for example, a match or a training the following day or that evening. And then away from that, I always try to stimulate my mind in something I'm, I'm reading, just finished Jim Paradox Press, or yeah. Steve Peterson. Yeah. Really interesting. I'm now on to a leadership book on it's about the NBA and successful coaches and mindset and all that. And just something different to stimulate my mind. I don't know all that much about basketball, but it's something new that I'm learning. It's something new from a stimulation point that is trying to get me thinking in a different way and a different aspect of life that I never would have subjected myself to. I'm constantly trying to build upon, I'm asking other people, like, what do you do for your mental health? What's in your, as I coined it back in St. Pat's, your mental health toolbox. Yeah. So many tools and resources that mental health toolboxes was bottomless it was just empty it was there was nothing there but now there's so much things in it i still practice meditation mindfulness i'm, I'm still not all that great at it but, but that's the drive and desire that i want to be able to sit there with my own thoughts a lot of the times I, I can't go out and physically exercise and run around and, uh, and expend so much energy that sometimes yeah just sit there with your thoughts and accept them for what they are and actually train yourself to be comfortable being uncomfortable so many things that I have there four or five things staple things those pillars that I have and then I get some pieces like as I go through the, the weeks and months excellent meditation is my number one and movement so I like I put a post today on my social media platform that I have a morning routine I meditate move and have a cold shower and when I do that my day normally is good and that doesn't mean like that when I meditate my mind isn't racing it just means I'm trying to be present. When my mind starts racing, I acknowledge it and go, my mind is racing. That's okay. And I do vibes. Yeah. I do breath work. And just there's a lot of power in breath and the breath work. And that's why Wim Hof has got so famous. And then you have other people, the oxygen advantage. That really works for me. I think a lot of people actually touching upon that kind of meditation side. I think a lot of people think of like a yogi sitting there, free spirit and nothing going through their head. I think a lot of people think that's what headspace that you have to be in when you're doing meditation or mindfulness. When in fact, it's not, as you just said there, sometimes your mind is racing and it's simply sitting there and accepting the fact of being present. Okay, I'm, I'm a bit stressed today for whatever reason. And, and you kind of think through that and be present with the thoughts because it's not going to be 100% every day. 
and exactly. people be lying to you exactly. if they said they are. And interesting. So what uh, what meditation or mindfulness do you use apps or what? To be honest, now I'm doing it seven years, so I can. I have a guided meditation on my podcast connected yeah. with the head, heart, and the gut. I do grounded meditation a lot when I did my NLP training. Sometimes I just check in and just see how my body's feeling and I nearly talk to it. I go, all right, so like for instance, I woke up the other morning at 2.40 and I had a pain in my stomach. Went down, I sat down and I was just like, what is this pain? And it was actually anxiety and that's okay. I had a bit of anxiety this year since my dad died and that's complete. Like I suffered a traumatic event and I'm completely aware of where I am. So I just talk to that and say it's okay. I am not anxiety. As I was talking about Pat Dibley there in the last podcast, anxiety is not who I am. It's part, just a part of who I am. It's going to come and go. But if I mm-hmm. run away from it, it's not going to go. It's going to stay there and build up and get bigger and bigger because it's mm-hmm. energy. And normally energy needs to move. But if you don't deal with it, it's not going to move. So yeah, I do a lot of different things. But guided, say you're having a bad day, your head's wrecked. Sometimes a guided meditation, five minutes, because yeah. it doesn't allow you to think because you're listening. I'd be interested, yeah, just because I'd use the Headspace app at the beginning of it all when, when I started out in kind of mindfulness meditation journey. And that thing of some days you, you would find yourself in that kind of Headspace where you're thinking, what is this from? And it's the beauty in it is that you sit there with it and you learn about not only your body, but your mind and how you kind of deal and cope with things. And you build up these different things. I've, I've found certain situations where I may feel stressed or anxious that different things work for me. You know, and it's about learning that. It's that constant quest of, I'm not the finished article in terms of getting on top of mental health, nor are you, nor anyone else. We're constantly learning. It's that kind of thing of accepting that and being willing to build up these tools and resources consistently and be able to be a better person as you go through life. And I think the more people that do that, the more benefit that they'll see. Before we finish, tell us about your book and how people can find out about you more. I was very lucky, in fact, that I'd written a blog back in December well, 2018. It was in around the time that I'd said to myself, right, I'll take a year out from uh, between my undergraduate degree and I'd figure out where I want to be. And one thing I knew was a staple in my life was sport. The next thing was mental health. And I wanted something out there on a social media platform that people can relate to. And it was the blog. And stemming from there, I, I didn't realize the, the impact that it would have on people one of which was O'Brien's publishers. They'd contacted me in April 2019 saying, would you like to do a book? And I was thinking, uh, <laughs> like, where do I start? What do I do? And all this kind of stuff. And they, they just you know, spoke with me, guided me through and got a team behind me. And I've been writing for the best part of a year now, just coming into the end of the editing process of it. It's essentially a book through, of course, through the hard and difficult times, but around my life, around you know, my primary school days and secondary school days and life thereafter. And of course, the bit in the middle of St. Pat's and the difficulties that I would have had around there. And I'm nearly finished there. First of February is the proposed release date. And I hope people will buy it and read it and resonate with it in some shape or form. Because I think from my personal standpoint, it can resonate with not only young people, but old, male, female. Because there's different aspects in life. My sister's in it, my family, coaches. So there's Every which person can relate to it in some shape or form. And I'm, I'm just hoping mm-hmm. it will be that platform to take that step that I did many years ago and, and not go beyond the, the dark and dreary times that have gone on far too long. So let's see, I'm, I'm really excited with it. There's, of course, a bit of apprehension. I'll put my life out there and very detailed bits of my life. It's mm-hmm. difficult that I wouldn't have opened up to my family for many years, my closest friends, and I'm putting it out public eye. So 
I'm hoping people will respect that and, uh, and relate to it and be effective in a positive way with it. Congratulations on the book. What's the name of it? We're working with three titles so far. Yet to be decided, so I'm going to keep that under wraps. Not even my mom and dad know that just yet. <laughs> What's your main message leaving this podcast and one line? Talk. Good man. Thanks very much, Shane. It was a pleasure having you on for a good, honest conversation, which is well needed. So thank you, and I look forward to releasing this. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and got something from it. Please share it if you can. And it'd be really, really great if you can leave a review on iTunes. Thank you, folks. Have a great week.